Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Nicholas Morton. Nick is an associate professor at Nottingham Trent University, where he teaches, researches, and publishes on the history of the Crusades in the medieval Near East between the 10th and the 14th centuries. Nick was previously on the podcast to talk about his book, The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East, and is back again today to talk about his book, The Crusader States and Their Neighbors, A Military History 1099 to 1187, which is a big picture presentation of the military history of the Middle East in the 12th century. So thank you so much, Nick, for joining me again. Thanks very much for having me back on the show. So to start off, as you yourself point out in your book, a lot of media has already been produced about the Crusades and the Crusader states, you know, films, television, historical fiction, popular history books, and of course, academic books as well. Um, So what was your goal with writing this book? What did you aim to highlight or point out about the history of the Crusades and the Crusader states that maybe hasn't already been covered in all of that sort of prior media. Sure, uh, yeah. So naturally you read the sources for the Crusades in the Middle East from various different cultures and perspectives. And as you do so, one of the things that really jumps out is just how much they talk about war. It's after royal marriages and the um, ins and outs of uh, court intrigue and, and church politics War is number one. It's the, a dominant theme across all sources, not just Western European sources, but also in Arabic sources, um, Eastern Christian sources, and other sources as well. And so there's the sheer quantity of source material. It always strikes me. It's a very obvious thing to say, but it's just there. Mm-hmm. And reflecting on that, um, and just looking at what had been studied and looked at previously, There has been quite a lot of scholarship, obviously, on crusading warfare. It's one of the themes that sort of jumps very quickly to mind for many people when they think about the Crusades. Uh, But nonetheless, what they've tended to do is to focus either on big battles or the political construction of events, which is fine. But there's two things I wanted to do which I felt were underserved. The first one was to think, well, okay. Let's look at warfare, not just for itself, but what it can tell us about everything else. And so this was a data-driven book. It's founded on a massive database or spreadsheet, which contains, I forget the exact number, but several thousand military encounters that I've managed to tabulate, not just for the Crusader States, but also for all neighboring regions. And I found that by tabulating every single skirmish and raid and battle I could find, that that meant that I could create data that could shed light on a great deal. When were rulers conducting campaigns? When were they not conducting campaigns? Which rulers were very front-footed in their military campaigning? When were they not? How frequently did Frankish or Turkish or Fatimid leaders lead their troops into battle against co-religionists? How often did they do so against people of other faiths? And so actually by making that data, you can actually draw up quite a lot about the character of individual rulers, 
about the nature of interfaith relations. I actually was quite surprised at how much economic data I managed to gather and insights I managed to glean by looking at warfare. So this was never warfare for itself proper. It was always warfare, yes, but also what can warfare tell us about what else is going on? One of the things that um, this isn't unique to me, this is an insight that so another historian made, John France, but which I sort of built on a bit. He noticed that the armies of the Kingdom of Jerusalem were huge, about 20,000 strong at their highest point. Now, that sounds like a fairly sort of nerdy military history type detail. But for me, at least, that got me thinking, well, OK, let's deconstruct that a bit by thinking about what that means for the economic basis necessary to support an army of that scale. And an army on that scale, that's bigger than pretty much any army of this era raised by anyone in Western Christendom, including the German Empire. Uh, so the Battle of Bovines, for example, 1214, again, I'm borrowing a bit from John France here. He makes the point, but neither of the battle, neither of the armies in this huge and influential battle were even close to the Kingdom of Jerusalem's army. Hmm. And so it's thinking about those kinds of bits of information and then thinking, well, the economic base to support an army of like, army of that size, particularly given the smallness of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, we learn something from that. So it's pooling all that military data, acknowledging just how much material there is in the sources, and then thinking what it can tell us about military matters, but also about other things as well. In a similar vein, using this database, I could reconstruct the nature of warfare and campaigning on a very granular level. And so rather than just looking at it's an oversimplification to say that historians are focused solely on battles. They haven't. There is some uh, expansion beyond that. Nevertheless, I could reconstruct campaigns, the nature of the frontier, the nature of um, the, the various campaigns waged in this era at a very detailed level. And I could begin to understand the nature of conflict, the mentalities behind it from multiple different factions. And that, too, shared insights not just about the nature of warfare itself, but also about wider matters, particularly about intercultural, interfaith relations. Yeah, is that that granularity um, that you just highlighted, I think, was really impressive to me and really interesting when reading your book, because you do um, go into detail about, you know, like you just said, sort of the raids and the skirmishes and these kind of military confrontations that are not just these big kind of name brand battles that we've all heard of, you know. Um, but so I wanted to ask about sort of a little bit more about your methodology for that, you know, does that information, do those details kind of reveal themselves to you solely in just written sources? You know, what sources are you using um, to kind of extract that information and build this database? And how do you, you know, obviously with all of the kind of um, problems, biases, misinformation, you know, missing and misinformation, things like that, that can be, that are part of sort of part and parcel of working with medieval literary sources. How did you sort of deal with all of those challenges? I think, to be honest with you, and you've, you've just, as, as you said, it's something the main thing you have to do to acknowledge it. Uh, I, don't, I don't doubt that I probably haven't missed a single big battle in the Middle East during this era because all writers write about them. And you can tell which ones are really big because literally every single author has at least some reference to it. Um, 
at the same time, I equally don't doubt that I have missed many small skirmishes or raids for the simple fact that they don't appear in the sources. They're just not significant enough to make the cut. So I'm not claiming to have got every single encounter that ever took place. What I am claiming is I've done the very best I can using all the available sources that I can possibly access and just to go through them very, very carefully and to extract as much data as possible. And of course, within that process of data extraction, also to weigh the source itself. Needless to say, accounts have their own perspectives and that can affect the way they present events. So a nuanced and analytical approach to the sources, but nonetheless trying to draw out and reach a reasonable um, judgment on the data that's available, putting it into a database and then seeing if we can extract um, statistics from that. On some occasions, I just felt I couldn't draw statistical data from the um, material I put together because it's just too fragmentary. Uh, the information, for example, on uh, southern Anatolia, so that would be the county of Edessa, one of the Crusader states, or the lands of the Artokid dynasty, which is a neighbouring power, or the Anatolian Seljuks, it's very patchy. I didn't feel like meaningfully draw statistical data from that. Further south, the information tends to be better. The sources are often more informed, particularly those concerned with Egypt. So to some extent, you've got to reach a, a judgment about when you've reached a critical mass where the data becomes meaningful, I suppose. And that's not a particularly, there's there's no sort of hard and fast way of doing it because you, you never quite know how much you're missing. But you do you do kind of get to a stage where you think, well, I, I can actually see the progression of the major armies, the major rulers. I can see when they're at war and when they're not. I probably do have enough information here for the statistics to be meaningful. And in the same way where there are gaps, you may well think, well, actually, I don't have enough information to reach that kind of verdict. So, for example, I'm reasonably comfortable that I've got most of the campaigns, offensive campaigns launched by the rulers of the three southernmost crusader states, and I present them in the book, but I don't feel confident about that for the northernmost crusader state, which is the county of Odessa, because the evidence is just so slight, so I don't present it. Mm. And so... Um... Who was writing about, you know, crusader battles or crusader military confrontations during this period? You know, you said that, um, you know, what was interesting for you is that warfare can tell us about sort of everything else during this period, can tell us about other facets and sort of all other aspects of life in and around the crusader states. So I would assume that that means also that um, sources of information on war came from uh, literary sources that weren't just kind of the historical chronicles or things like that. So what were some of the other like literary sources that you were relying on? Yes. So it's, again, this just comes into the analytics of it. Um, the chronicles, particularly if the chronicles from two different cultural traditions agreed. So if, for example, a Syriac Christian source and a Arabic source whose authors have never met, if they both report the same encounter, I feel reasonably confident saying, well, that, that can that can be a piece of data. That's something we can be reasonably confident actually happened in some way, shape or form. But as you say, if, you, if you've got chansons where you hear about epic stories about battles, which more than occasionally include dragons, um, then you do have to wonder on that kind of score, I typically included that data in my database, but I, I highlighted it in yellow 
which is my way of a note to self, which is to say, I am not sure about this. And typically, whilst it was in that database, just in case corroboration of some kind occurred, I wouldn't include it unless some corroboration came up. I was fairly cautious about you do have to, to make a judgment. Either it's included in the data or it's not. There's no real way of doing it as a halfway house. So this way, at least it's presented in my database. So if, if something comes up which um, lends credence to it, then fine. But otherwise, if it contains dragons, I'm not going to be um, that quick to it to accept it. Um, and so on the topic of nomads um, yeah. and nomadism sort of around the Crusades and the Crusader states, um, you talk about two major nomadic groups sort of participation in the Crusades, the Turks and the Bedouin. Um, and the role of the Bedouin, I think, is really interesting, but often seemingly marginal within the larger history of the Crusades, and I think tends to get overlooked in most histories. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, about Bedouin participation in Crusader warfare and how the Bedouin both you know, affected and were affected by the Crusades? Yes, sure. Sorry, I'm just going to turn my email off so I don't get any more email notification noises. Uh, yes, so... The background to this is that during the 11th century, the late 11th century, there are two really big invasions into Syria. The one that everyone's heard of is the Crusades, the First Crusade. But equally, possibly even of greater significance, are the Seljuk invasions. So the Seljuks and a range of Turkish groups moved out of the Central Asian steppe region, conquering Persia and many surrounding areas, moving into Iraq, um, taking control over Baghdad in 1055, and then pushing into Syria in the 1070s. So they've only been there 20 or so years before the Crusaders themselves, and they're not necessarily seen as a familiar um, people to the, the various other communities in the region. Often they're seen as being something that's distinctly uh, unusual and not something that they would reckon that, that's that's usual for them. The Turks themselves, by this stage, they're at a very early phase in their conversion to Islam, so they wouldn't necessarily be seen as co-religionists by um, other Muslim rulers in the area. And the leading dynasties in places like Aleppo and Mosul, the towns of the Jazeera, Damascus, they are... Um, removed often forcibly by the Seljuks and of course these dynasties often have very large uh, familial followings or they're part of a broader um, Arab community so this is resented and there are stereotypes about the Turks who are often presented as being uncouth or drunken by local people so the Turks themselves are only at an early stage of their own conquest of the Middle East at the time that the Crusaders themselves arrive and in fact with the arrival of the First Crusade and the defeat of a series of Seljuk field armies at Dorylium and three field armies outside Antioch, this seems to have provided proof to many local peoples that the Seljuks can be defeated in battle, which in turn then provoked resistance, most famously from Armenian Christians, but you also hear stories about other groups across the, the Middle East rising up at that moment too, because they can see Seljuk authority is hanging by a thread. So that creates an interesting environment. And as you say, the Bedouin themselves are play 
a fascinating role in that because there are lots of examples of cooperation between the Franks and the Bedouin from a very early stage. The earliest reference we have to this cooperation goes all the way back to the siege of Antioch in 1098, right in sort of the mid middle of the first crusade. And the problem is we know very little about it. We hear that from, I don't know, some of the Frankish sources that the Crusaders in some way assisted a Bedouin group or they were assisted by a group and a relationship formed. But for myself, my suspicion has always been, it's a little bit unfounded because we would, of course, we would very much benefit from having sources written by these Bedouin groups themselves, which we don't. But I've always suspected that it's competition over grazing. That when the uh, Seljuks and large groups of Turkmen move into the northern Jazeera, southern Anatolia, Azerbaijan region, they're looking for the main areas of grazing. And certainly the major areas of Turkmen settlement are traditional areas of grazing, which is that sort of belt across southern Anatolia all the way across to Azerbaijan, which is deemed very desirable, not just by the Seljuks and affiliated Turkish groups, but later on by the Mongols as well. And my suspicion has always been that the Bedouin the Bedouin were being pushed off their grazing, and so as a result, they had a vested interest in aligning themselves with anyone who could offer resistance to the Turks, and then perhaps they'd get that grazing back, or indeed within the borders of the Crusader states. There's some good grazing, but I wonder also if the Bedouin are looking for that grazing because the Franks are willing to offer it, and it's not therefore in competition with other Turkish groups in quite the same way. So it's a complex picture, and certainly we do hear about competition over grazing in other, um, between, say, the, the Turks and the Kurds at some point mm. in the 12th century. So I think it's a topic that isn't represented prominently in the sources, but every now and again you get a glimpse that implies that actually this is a really big deal. It's just not necessarily a, a big deal from a sort of high-profile elite perspective, whether that elite is a writing from an Arabic, a Eastern Christian or Frankish perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting theory and one that makes a lot of logical sense as well. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's also a long history of um, Bedouin, of Bedouin participation in kind of larger uh conflicts between empires you know especially as being sort and of kind of playing those empires off against each other for their own um economic gain often you know especially in the case of sort of rome versus persia or byzantium versus persia um is there any sort of evidence maybe for something like that as well of the bedouin sort of being simply not simply but of being kind of just soldiers for hire available to the highest bidder in this context and that the, you know, the crusading armies were sometimes often the highest bidder or what did that sort of, what were the other kind of economic factors um, that we know of? Yeah, sure. Um, I can think of a few examples of um, Bedouin forces actually sort of within the employ. Um, I can't think of many actually um, of the crusader states, many more examples of them working collaboratively particularly in the sort of the Transjordan region. But there is a strong pragmatism, certainly, to the way that the Bedouin operate. And there are examples where they they join the battle once it's very clear who's going to win it, because they want to be on the winning side, and they also want the opportunity to hunt down and then 
to plunder the, the, the withdrawing army. And certainly when Saladin invaded the southern margins of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1177 and received a surprise defeat at the hands of the kingdom, it's after he is defeated, the Franks pursue his forces for a distance, but it's the Bedouin that follows them all the way back to Egypt, taking as much as they can. And Saladin has a very complex relationship with the Bedouin throughout his reign, often very hostile. It's a, it's a very complex picture there. And of course, when, you, when I talk about the Bedouin, in some ways I'm vastly oversimplifying because which community are you talking about? And there's plenty of times where you have one Bedouin community um, supporting one faction and one supporting another and others who are unaligned. And the problem is we often don't know which is which because often the Bedouin are spoken of as a collective group, which is why it's very easy to fall into the lazy habit of doing that too. But of course, they are different communities, and those communities have their own uh, relationships and complexities which we don't necessarily see, but which I think it is prudent to recognise are probably there. Yeah. Yeah, and so on the on the topic of nomads and sort of nomadic warfare, you know, one of your major conclusions um, is that uh, the Turks, the Seljuk Turks, um, had a sort of nomadic style of warfare um, that was sort of, and, you know, I'm sort of just regurgitating your argument, you can uh, phrase it more elegantly in your own words, um, but that the Seljuk Turks had a kind of nomadic style of warfare that was particularly well suited to the kind of given landscape and climate um, and that the crusaders, the European crusaders um, sort of weren't able to adapt to that style of warfare quickly enough um, and that the kind of reliance on siege warfare uh, and military siege technologies kind of um, was maybe very successful at first in the first crusades, um, but then proved not to be successful in the long run. Could you talk a little bit more about that, about those sort of, you call them basically nomadic versus agricultural uh, practices of warfare. Can you talk about what you mean by that? What is kind of nomadic warfare versus agricultural warfare? Yes, um, again, this comes a little bit with my blushes because these are, of course, simplifications in that Frankish armies included some nomadic forces, um, Turkish forces included some troops that would come from agricultural communities themselves. But yes, in principle, we're talking about a confrontation or multiple lines of confrontation, I should say, across the Middle East, um, in which you have various societies whose armies are basically centered on a nomadic template and those who are um, centred on an agricultural one. And to explain what I mean by that, and the, cl the classic hallmark of a nomadic society in this era is that is the way they raise their children, in that children are raised to ride and hunt and shoot pretty much from as soon as they can walk. And these are skills that lend themselves very naturally to the battlefield. They permit a great deal more movement in the conduct of war. And they're, they're very effective. In the 11th century, the Seljuk Turks managed to conquer a region from the borders of the Central Asian steppe all the way across to the Mediterranean seaboard. That is a huge area of land. The next century, or in the 13th century, the Mongols managed to conquer the better part of Eurasia. And there are some significant similarities in the way that they waged war. By contrast, 
the Crusades, which whatever you think of them from a military perspective, people have tended to say these are very successful endeavors, at least the first crusade in their origins and their ability to march over great distances and then take a series of major cities so far from their own sources of supply. Compared to the military um, conquests of the Seljuks and Mongols, these are tiny, a tiny little slither of lands down the Eastern Mediterranean seaboard. And yet this, from a purely military perspective, is arguably the most effective military campaign waged by Western Christendom at any point during this particular era. And I, I flag that up because I want to make the point that it's easy to lose sight of the fact of just how effective nomadic societies are across the board, not just in warfare, in all sorts of areas, in art and culture, in, in political organisation, in innovation. But for the purposes of this exercise, in warfare, they're able to conquer much larger areas of land, and that's largely due to their, their movements and the fact that so many members of their society are able to fight, and that makes them very, very effective. Agricultural societies, and here I'm talking not just about the Crusades or Western Europeans, but also the Byzantine Empire, to some extent the Fatimid Empire and various other Muslim polities, which are more agricultural in terms of their underlying economic base. You're talking about a situation where maybe 19 out of 20 people are farmers. They're not raised to fight. They're raised to work the soil or conduct artisanal activity. So they're not trained to fight. They might be prepared to uh, man the battlements or defend their town if they're attacked. But at the same time, they're not trained warriors in quite the same way. The number of warriors is much smaller. And those warriors tend to be elites. And those elites may have lots of fancy things like um, stud farm reared horses and elaborate armor and extremely well-crafted weapons, which on a one-to-one -one basis will give them the upper hand, typically against a nomadic soldier, but there's so few of them. And they need a great deal of support. They need grooms. They need wagon trains, bringing them horseshoes and food and fodder, and even more valuable things like hawks and hounds and all the things that they deemed to be so essential, even though they don't actually need them to conduct warfare, but they come in the wagons anyway. And this, all of this makes makes agricultural societies a great deal more fragile in the battlefield. There's fewer fighters, the fighters tend to be effective, but in small numbers, and they're dependent on long logistics trains that nomadic um, armies are so effective at cutting, whereas those nomadic societies themselves don't really have logistics in quite the same way, because they bring their herds with them, which can then provide them with the sustenance they need. So from that template alone, there is a substantial advantage for nomadic societies. And in siege warfare, they have this too. Um, so at a fairly early stage, for example, um, you see Turkish commanders using miners to get under walls. That's how they get into towns and cities. And what they do is they array tens of thousands of archers around a stretch of walls. Those archers pour volleys of arrows into the defending town, clearing the battlements. When the battlements are cleared, the miners go um, to the base of the wall and then um, dig under it and bring the wall down. And that process can be as quick as a single night. Frankish armies are very different. They can't possibly absorb the attrition rate that that kind of approach would take. Their armies tend to be smaller, more, more 
better equipped, but they they can't just line up tens of thousands of archers and just tell them to fire into the city to cover cover for mines. That's just not going to happen. They depend much more on siege towers, which require huge bulks of timber, which the Middle East often can't provide. And these siege towers can take weeks to produce. And sometimes just getting the timbers to the siege can be a massive logistics feat in its own right. So where Turkish armies can get into a city in a day, a week, maximum a month, Frankish armies can take months to do it. And given that most armies will lift a siege when a relief army arrives, that basically means that Turkish siege tactics are substantially more effective. And after an initial period of success where the momentum's going their own way, Frankish sieges begin to fail nearly all the time, certainly against big targets, whereas Turkish armies continually prove successful in siege craft. So there are all sorts of different um, balances, many of them rooted in underlying nomadic culture, some not so, but ultimately Turkish societies tend to be more effective in war at this time than Frankish armies. In big pitched battles, it's about 50-50. In other contexts, Frankish armies fare very badly. Although I should just add as a, as a sort of corollary to that, as I've already mentioned, it's not as simple as always being Frankish armies on one side, Turkish armies on another. Often it's Turkish armies versus Turkish armies, or even a mixture. There are plenty of occasions where you have Turkish and Frankish forces on one side and Turkish and Frankish forces on the other side too, because such is the nature of um, the complexities of Middle Eastern politics in this era. And in all eras. Uh, <laughs> uh, is there any evidence of the Crusader armies sort of recognizing their shortcomings in comparison to the Turkish army, uh, the Turkish forces, and maybe trying to emulate their uh, modes of fighting or their modes of warfare, any kind of is, you know, do we see any sort of recognition um, among military leaders at the time of the, maybe some of the advantages um, that nomadic societies um, lent them in terms of warfare and trying to uh, maybe copy some of what they did to sort of try to emulate their successes? Absolutely. Uh, and this, this for me is, this is always the the topic I find most fascinating about this period, not just in warfare, but in so many areas, just this mm -hmm. exchange of ideas. It doesn't always happen. I mean, if I call it exchange of ideas, that sounds incredibly sort of positive and collaborative. Often it's not conducted in a nice way, but it happens anyway. Um, and so this happens in, in a, a range of different contexts. And so, for example, it seems fairly clear to me that when, let's say, for example, the Emir of Damascus has arranged for a town wall, a town's walls to be built and spent all his money doing that. And then sudden, and he can no longer afford to employ them. It seems perfectly clear to me that that labor force, which itself is very sort of cross-cultural, will then go to Silesian Armenia mm. or the county of Tripoli or the principality. Of they follow the work. And of course they're bringing their building techniques with them, which goes some way to explaining why distinctively Islamic forms of architecture appear in Crusader castles and distinctively Western European forms of architecture appear in Islamic buildings too, or the buildings commissioned by Turkish or Islamic rulers. And so there is plenty of context for this exchange. On the battlefield itself, both uh, Muslim and uh, Frankish Christian commanders, they both borrow heavily from each other. And so they, they both see things in the way that the opposing forces fight 
which they see as being worthy of emulation. And so, for example, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and in fact, all the Crusader states, employ forces called Turcopoles, which are basically Turkish-like cavalry, because they realize the value and effectiveness of Turkish-like cavalry forces, and so the obvious thing to do is to recruit them. And that's possible. You, they're, they're, there's, no, there's no problem with that. There's no ideological problem for the Crusader states rulers to hire Turkish troops and the Turkish troops themselves seem to have felt no problem with that either. So that happens in the same way. There's a massive mercenary market across the entire Middle East, and most cultures allow their troops to go and fight for other rulers, particularly if they're not if they're fighting for those other rulers against someone else who's not them. So we hear plenty of examples of Frankish knights serving with Muslim rulers. Muslim rulers that happens quite commonly. There's quite a nice, um, a, a neat story on that point, where in 1124. Um, a Frankish army is besieging Aleppo and a mercenary company at that time is heading north to the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate to offer its services to the various Turkish elites in that area and then gets called back by the King of Jerusalem who then try, obviously off, off, makes a better offer because the King of Jerusalem wants their services. And I think that it's, it's a buyer's market. The mercenary companies are there. The mercenary companies come from multiple different cultures. They are available for hire. If you have the money, they will fight for you. And of course, by doing so, by crossing multiple cultural boundaries, they're bringing their own ideas and techniques with them, which can then be shared. And so, for example, we know that um, leading Turkish rulers, people like Nur al-Din and later on Saladin, we know that they began to build up their forces of heavy cavalry which seem to have been developed in specific emulation of Frankish heavy cavalry, because Frankish heavy cavalry is very effective. So why wouldn't they develop those sorts of forces in just the same way that the, Frank, the Franks themselves employ Turkish-like cavalry, because they are lacking in that area. So there's all sorts of um, adaptations and sharings of ideas that takes place in this context. It's even more so, it seems to me, in uh, naval warfare and naval architecture, where again, all sorts of different ideas about navigation and the construction of ships. You can find examples going both ways. Again, all I shouldn't say both ways, all ways. Lots of societies are participating in creating a milieu where ideas get shared and then employed. And I don't know, it's one of those things where you wish if you could go back in time and be a fly on the wall, um, some of these things, just see what's going on the conversations and how they do that and how they manage language barriers and cultural barriers and what that looks like. Uh, it must have been fascinating, but one development, again, I'm, I'm standing on someone else's shoulders here. Uh, uh, so Mike Fulton, he's done a very interesting study on catapult technology, all those big siege catapults. And he notices that um, counterweight trebuchets so that's those um catapults where they have a big weight at one end that pulls down the throwing arm and then hurls up the um projectile they appear in saladin's armies and the kingdom of jerusalem's armies virtually simultaneously mm. and so that rather sort of that, that leads me on to a debate which i've always has always made me smile which is you'll always get some commentators from multiple different perspectives arguing about which societies 
more innovative mm-hmm. and which society has the technological edge and often these often these viewpoints are being put forward with a certain how shall i put it agenda at play shall we say that isn't necessarily rooted solely in the sources but it makes me smile because that's not the way the milieu works it's not like modern day nation states where um i don't know a scientist works for a particular country all the way through their career and these are trade secrets and although espionage might try and take place to get those secrets they are locked into that state and they're not shared this is not how it works in the east mediterranean artisans siege engineers mercenaries pass freely across cultural borders and so as a result it's not particularly surprising that the technologies and ideas are shared consistently and that in fact in so many aspects of life the technological playing field is flat because they all have access to the same sorts of technologies. The only slight exception I'd make to that is areas where there is obvious excellence in a particular area um, for one particular culture. And so, for example, uh, many nomadic peoples in the Near East are just such superb um, experts at rearing horses that always draws attention. Damascus is famous for its armaments industry. Venice is famous for producing ships. So these areas, these centers of excellence do have some sort of exalted status within the wider playing field, but their technology still gets shared. So it's not that big a discrepancy. Mm. And are there instances maybe during the Crusades um, or maybe beyond sort of in um, maybe medieval Near Eastern history in general, where it wasn't a uh, kind of military advantage to come from a nomadic background or to sort of rely on or use nomadic modes of warfare. You know, I think we tend to um, really point to and hold up um, the military achievements of nomadic peoples during this period, you know, from the Turks, the Mongols, the Tiburids, you know, we really tend to look to um, these the sort of succession of nomadic empires um, for their military achievements uh, and for what they were able to do in terms of military conquest, um, seemingly kind of despite the odds often. Um, but were there are there examples of maybe military confrontations, battles, wars, um, where nomadic peoples were at a disadvantage because of their because of their kind of nomadic background yes this is an interesting point because it's it's actually clearer with the mongols on this Mm. question than it is for the seljuk turks the the bottom line is nomadic societies have difficulty penetrating areas where they can't graze their animals so that's why areas like the northern jazeera southern anatolia as a azerbaijan these are areas preferenced by nomadic people because the grazing there is good, or there are substantial areas of good grazing. We tend to hear less about pretty Turkmen communities further south in Syria. You hear about them a bit in the Homs Gap, so that's just north of the sort of Mount Lebanon region. You hear about them a little bit around Lake Tiberias, which is also reasonably good grazing. Further south, not so much. And so that will have its impact. Of course, they can march armies 
beyond those borders, but often those armies involve riders who have several mounts per rider, and those mounts require fodder. So that creates boundaries as to their field of movement. Of course, you can compensate for that a bit. I, I start by the time of the sort of the mid 12th century, I, I tend to call Turkish, or Turkish or the successor states to the Seljuk Turks as more hybrid societies, and they have both agricultural and nomadic components to them. And so you can balance that a bit if you can buy in or get sort of wagon in fodder for your horses. Obviously, they are acquiring the trappings of an agricultural society, but you can project force into areas otherwise for a purely, purely nomadic society might be more difficult to um, sustain. Hilly territory tends to be okay. Mountainous territory tends to be more difficult for nomadic forces. I, it's notable that many of the sort of most survivable communities in large areas of the Middle East. So I'm thinking about people like the Alawites in the mountains above Latakia or the Maronites in the Lebanese mountains. Often they stick very closely to the upper end of the foothills around mountainous regions. I suspect because they're, um, they're, they're harder to access for any armies, but particularly nomadic armies. Areas of dense woodland can be difficult. You actually have an example in the 13th century. I think it's Michael VIII, VIII Paleologus, who actually starts to plant trees in border region because forests again don't help nomadic forces that much and so if you can create an inhospitable terrain then that can produce uh, a fairly sort of cheap border defense which otherwise would have to be replaced with walls or castles and all the mm -hmm. rest of it so there are ways of doing it the mongols particularly struggled um one of the big questions about the mongols and their wars in the middle east is um, around the year 1090, sorry, 1299. So for the previous 39 years, the Mongols have been trying to break through the Mamluk Empire in Egypt and Syria's defences along the river Euphrates. And on the very rare occasion that they did break through those defences, the Mongols were defeated fairly soon afterwards. And so historians have been very interested in 1299 when a Mongol army did break through the Euphrates defences and did defeat the Mamluks' major field army in battle, and then withdrew. And there's an obvious question of, well, why did they do that? The Mamluk Empire is ready to fall. Why don't they push on to Egypt and complete their conquest? The main field army is gone. They've got the upper hand. Why aren't they taking advantage of it? And there's a, a Knights Templar author who wasn't involved in that particular campaign, but obviously watched it very closely. And his comment is fairly simple. He just says um, the reason that the Mongols didn't press their advantage against the Mamluks is because they couldn't simply couldn't get together enough fodder and grazing land for their army. Mm -hmm. And so when they'd exhausted what little there was, they had to withdraw. Right. And so certainly that can play a major factor. Another fact, it's a little bit of an obvious thing to say, is um, naval warfare. Now, some nomadic societies make the transition to... Um, naval warfare, maritime commerce, maritime exploration, maritime um, military campaigns fairly smoothly. That seems to be particularly the case for the various Turkish um, dynasties that conquered parts of Anatolia. So in the 11th century, you hear about some of the, sort of the Turkmen groups who conquered parts of Anatolia, um, becoming naval raiders very quickly after conquering the region. That becomes a much bigger factor um, with the rise of the Beyliks in the 
late 13th and 14th century and the rise of the Ottomans who become a very major military power. Other nomadic societies seem to make the trans transition to being naval powers less effectively. So that's more of an imponderable. And certainly it's notable that when uh, I'm going to get this quotation wrong, but it goes something like this. It's a, a situation where um, the Mamluk Sultan Baybars in, the, I think, the 1270s is talking to some diplomats from um, the Italian cities. And he makes a very telling comment, which goes something like, um, your your ships are my horses and, and my horses are your ships. And what I think he's saying there is that whilst he can dominate land-based warfare because of the excellence of his cavalry, he's kind of acknowledging that the Italian cities have the upper hand at sea because that's their centre of expertise and where they have generational knowledge and wisdom and about the sea and sea conditions and prevailing wind directions and all the things you need to make maritime commerce and warfare work. Mm. And... Um... You just touched on sort of environmental weapons of warfare, particularly in relation, uh, particularly sort of directed against the Mongol conquest. You know, you mentioned like the planting of forests uh, to sort of um, be a kind of natural barrier um, to the Mongol herds. The but then uh, I think in our last conversation about the Mongols, we talked about this in more detail as well, things like, you know, burning uh, pasture land and fields um, to deprive um, to deprive them um, to the Mongols. Are there examples of that um, that occur um, during the Crusades as well, um, uh, directed towards uh, the Turks? Or is that not really, or towards, you know, the Bedouin or other nomadic groups participating um, in Crusader warfare? Is that not really possible um, in that sort of context of the kind of um, the relative sort of density of the Crusader states, um, as you already sort of mentioned the fact that this was a much more, um, yeah, much more kind of concentrated environment with um, the kind of different factions living in much closer relation to each other and relying perhaps on the same natural resources. Yeah, so it, yes, yes and no. I mean, I, I can only think of a few examples where sort of environmental, as you say, weapons were used, but often it's, um, it's, Turkish or Ayyubid commanders using these weapons against the Crusaders rather than the other way around. Mm. So, I mean, for example, there's some quite interesting stories about there's an Artokid commander called Balak, who in the 1120s, he's confronted by a force of Frankish heavy cavalry. He clearly doesn't want to have to face them head on. So he leads them on a pursuit um, that then passes through some very sort of marshy ground and his light cavalry passes across it or around it. The Frankish heavy cavalry bowls straight into it and sinks. So there he's making and he's 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 using the, the weight of the Frankish cavalry against them. Uh, an example I can think of where it was used against Turkish forces is that Frankish commanders like to use, like to wait for rainy conditions mm. before fighting the Turks. And the reason is that Turkish forces are very heavily dependent on their bows. And the, pro and the problem is their bows are made from layers of um, horn and bone of them being glued together. They're very powerful, 
but the Crusaders work out fairly quickly that the glue holding together these lengths of horn and bow, so these, these horn and bone, are water-soluble, and the strings themselves can snap in the rain. And so heavy rain is a preferred condition for the mm -hmm. Crusade commanders because they know it will work against their opponents, and they realise that very quickly. Another one, it's only sort of um, environmental. It's using the climate and sort of the day and night, really, is incredible penchant among Crusade commands for night actions. Mm -hmm. A lot of Crusade um, campaigning is done at night, and I suspect that's partly because nomadic armies are so effective at archery, and so at night that's more of a problem, mm -hmm. but also because the Frankish battle winner is their heavy cavalry which involves piling about five to seven hundred heavy cavalry knights in a massive charge that will then destroy their opponent's army. The problem is that nomadic armies won't just stand there and wait for them to arrive. They will tend to get out of the way and then they'll circle around them mm -hmm. and shoot down the Franks horses. And the Franks know this. So as a result, the, the make or break moment in a battle is normally the question on the Frankish side of whether they can make their heavy cavalry hit something, and on the Turkish side, whether they can get their cavalry out of the way before the Franks arrive. And so one of the ways the Franks try and mitigate this is that they tend to conduct long night marches, sometimes tens of miles in pitch darkness using guides um, to get them as close as possible to their opponent's encampment, to form up in silence in sort of just before um, dawn, and then literally the minute there's enough light to see anything, they charge directly into their enemy's encampment, because when they're in their encampment, they can't scatter in the way that they would like. And so that's how many battles are won by the Franks, using the hours of darkness to get as close as they can, and then stage an assault at first light. In fact, I'd say probably about half their victories come from that, and they start to fare much less well when Turkish or Ayyubid commanders begin to heavily fortify their camp or to mm -hmm. deliberately place their camps in areas of stony or broken ground, which is less conducive for cavalry. So they, they adjust themselves when mm -hmm. they realize that they're at a disadvantage in that scenario. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and so finally, as we're coming up on the end of our time, um, this isn't really a well-formulated question, maybe more of an observation or something I was thinking about as I was reading your book uh, and going back also to my first question about just sort of the vast amount of media and particularly English language media that's been produced on the Crusades. It's always seemed to me that the history of the Crusades still looms quite large and plays quite a large role in the Western historical and cultural imagination, but that they're not really considered that important in the Middle East. Um, like I was, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, but I'm doing uh, research for my dissertation in Jordan right now. And, you know, here crusader sites like Karak and Shobak definitely seem to be kind of less important um, than, you know, the earlier Nabataean or Roman or early Islamic, you know, tourist destinations, for example. And, you know, so in the time that I've spent in the Middle East, which I've really only spent substantial amounts of time in Palestine and Jordan, so this could be a wild oversimplification, but I've always been really struck by this fact or how it seems to me 
that the Crusades are still considered so important in the West, but not so much in the countries where the Crusades actually took place. Um, so I guess I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to if that, you know, that might not be your experience at all, um, but if you can speak to why that might be, you know, why are the Crusades having not taken place in Europe, um, why are they still such a sort of important part of European identity or, you know, sort of historical and cultural self-fashionings and imaginations? Sure, that's a great question. Um, in terms of, I mean, in, in, from, from my experience of um, talking to people and visiting sites and spending time in the Middle East, it rather depends what conversation is being had. Mm. Uh, if, you, if you're having a conversation that is in some way connected to, I don't know, the broader relationship between areas of the Middle East and Western Christendom and Western Europe, the Crusades tend to come up fairly quickly in other areas less so. And But I, I agree when... Um, when I travelled around Jordan, it was Petra yeah. and um, places like that and the Roman sites. And the, these were the things that were sort of foregrounded. Absolutely. But something I feel very strongly about this era of history. So talking, well, my own, my own sort of main central period is between 10th and 14th century, is I've always felt as a, as a huge amount of other things that are going on. <laughs> the Crusades tend to get found, foregrounded because they they are situated in conversations very centrally often mm. um, as a pivotal moment in the relationship between Western Christendom and the Middle East or however people caption or present that. But actually that centrality, I've always felt this is something I really wanted to bring out with Mongol Storm, uh, which is a multi-perspective history of the 13th century Middle East is, yes, I wanted to include the Crusades and the Crusader States because they're there, they're a, they're a piece of the jigsaw puzzle, but they're only a piece. There's a lot of other things going on, there's a lot of other relationships, there's wars, there's conflicts, there's diplomacy, there's technological change, there's cultural change, there's religious conversion that has nothing to do with Catholic Christianity. There's all sorts of other things going on that are really interesting and important and they're often a much bigger role in the evolution of events than the Crusades. And in fact, at the moment, I'm writing a kind of prequel to the Mongol Storm, which is kind of making this point, really. It's looking at the Crusades, but from a much more regional, in some respects, global perspective, making the point that this is just one phenomenon going on in a region where there's a lot of other things going on as well, a lot of other changes, um, which have nothing to do with the Crusades at all. It's something that struck me very early on in my academic career was um, when I was reading various Arabic and Eastern, history, Eastern Christian histories of, from various different parts of the Middle East, I, I read several and I thought, well, I wonder what these say about the Crusades. And then to my surprise, the Crusades either weren't mentioned at all or mentioned fleetingly. And even Saladin occasionally only gets brief mention or none. And just reading that just made me think, why have we attached such centrality then to the Crusades or indeed to individuals like Saladin, when in fact there are writers writing histories of large, large geographical areas who feel from this era, who feel no need to mention them at all. And I found that quite a salutary moment about 
15, 20 years ago, I think, but it, it's shaped my thinking since because it realized that we made me realize that whilst I'm interested in the Crusades, and that's one of my main sort of areas of specialism, that is not the sum of what's going on in the Middle East. It's not even the biggest show in town. It's mm -hmm. one part of a jigsaw puzzle, but that jigsaw puzzle includes many other pieces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great note to end on and also just a great sort of, I guess, reminder to anyone who studies history, uh, who does history, um, that these, especially in an academic setting, um, that these periods in history, these things that we focus on and dedicate our lives to studying, you know, seem so important to us, but to somebody else, to somebody living through them, it might have just been sort of background noise, you know, um, and that's a sort of important part of the puzzle, as you said, and sort of part of the experience to remember and to take into consideration. Uh, so thank you so much again uh, for coming back to speak with me. I learned a lot once again, as I always do. Uh, I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, it was, like I said, it was a really impressive piece of scholarship. Um, so thank you for writing it and thank you uh, for taking the time to come on and uh, share with listeners about it. My pleasure. Thank you so much.